Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Folta, and today we'll be talking about technology, science, and society. And with me today is Dr. Matt Harsh. He is uh, from the, uh, he's an assistant professor at Concordia University in beautiful Montreal, Canada. And Matt, it's a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, great, great to have you. So um, I, I, I want to give you a chance to maybe start by telling us something about your uh, your background and, and your interest. But um, but uh, I, I'd like to first uh, add that I've I, we met uh, in Washington D.C. back in December, and uh, where uh, where you were a panel member as well as I in a forum for scientific society leaders on genetically engineered crops, and that was sponsored by the National Academy of Sciences. So, so Matt is a very distinguished and well recognized um, uh, guest, and uh, and so you know I'm just really excited that you can join us. So, why don't you start by um, Telling, telling us something about your interest in the relationship between technology and society, your background, your interests, etc. Sure, yeah, it'd be my pleasure. So uh, I originally trained as an engineer, a materials engineer, um, and then in graduate school, um, I, I thought, oh, you know, I'm not sure I want to spend all my time in the lab and, the, you know, behind the microscope, and I, I really liked technology, but I thought there seems to be something else there, another piece that was kind of missing, and I discovered this really exciting field called science and technology studies. Um, sometimes we call it STS. And so that's what I went and pursued for a master's and a PhD at the University of Edinburgh. So it's interdisciplinary social science. So for me, I use a lot of sociology, uh, public policy, and even a little bit of anthropology and economics to understand how technology changes and shapes society, and importantly, how society shapes and changes technology. And that second part is really important because often 
we see technologies when they're already fully developed, right? And that only leaves us with a few decisions, right? Do I buy that new iPhone or not? Um, if I'm a farmer, do I decide to adopt that uh, genetically engineered crop or not? Or we might think about governments, you know, uh, red lighting or green lighting a certain technology, a stop or go. But before we even get there, there are lots of decisions that get made. Um, by a constellation of different types of organizations and people, including a lot of people that are probably your listeners for this podcast, um, university professors and graduate students, make a lot of key decisions about what research they do that eventually leads to what technologies get developed. And of course, governments do a lot more than just regulating and, and you know, stopping or, or halting the development of technologies. They make all kinds of choices about funding and policies about intellectual property and even about publishing and open access uh, uh, to, to scientific data. And there are state and local governments and transnational government, uh, governmental organizations and non-governmental organizations that do research. And, of course, corporate practice and, and um, policies are important. And even everyday citizens and users of technology can contribute to research and design these days. Uh, and so it's my job as a science and technology and society scholar to help us understand those systems. I often call it the governance uh, of science. Uh, and so for my work, I've focused a lot on new and emerging technologies. You mentioned uh, genetically engineered crops, um, and I've looked at, at issues there. And I've also focused a lot on how new and emerging technologies are used in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where the systems that I was describing uh, that lead to technologies and benefits can be even more complicated uh, because there are different cultures involved. There are lots of international partnerships and uh, multilateral and bilateral donors. Um, and so I've looked at policy systems for genetically engineered crops in Kenya. I've done some work on nanotechnology in, in South Africa. And my latest project was about computing and information technology in Kenya and U Uganda. And for all these projects... I'm really just interested in, in whether and how these new and exciting areas of technology can improve people's livelihoods. Um, and the upshot, the conclusion of a lot of my work is that it's it's really hard. Even when you have all of the resources, uh, you're very well funded and you, you've got smart, knowledgeable people and people with good intentions and you've developed promising new technologies, it can be hard to develop and use them in ways that actually create positive outcomes um, for communities uh, in Africa. And I think, you know, the, the challenges here in the U.S. Are, are, are largely the same. It can be hard uh, to make those connections between exciting new technologies and, and positive outcomes for all of us. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, it's a great kind of introduction to what you do. And, and, and the reason I find it um, particularly interesting and important is because I, I would say that many of our listeners on this podcast are uh, – are see biotechnologies as uh, you know as as tools for improving people's lives, and so it, it, it's uh, great that you that you 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 study this as as a scholar. How how you know how do you how do you use the technologies to interface with society in a in a productive way? I, I was interested in your uh, dissertation, the title of which the PhD dissertation was "Living Technology and Development." Agricultural Biotechnology and Civil Society in Kenya. Now, Kenya is it's an interesting uh, country in, in this respect. That, that is, I see quite a few media reports in recent years of uh, biotechnology research and testing that's taking place that's actually done by Kenyans. Um, so this is not something coming from afar from a multinational corporation. Um, it's it's work that's being done by local scientists. It appears. What what did you learn in your um, dissertation, and what uh, nuggets do you have for us from that? 
Oh, goodness, you're asking me to, to reach way back for this one, Paul. Uh, but I'm happy to. Um, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Kenya, uh, Kenya's a country <laughs> in, uh, in East Africa, for those listeners who, uh, who might not be so familiar. Uh, and uh, I was, a, I was uh, sort of interested in doing work there exactly for the reasons that you mentioned is that, you know, outside of South Africa, um, South Africa is a little bit different in Africa. It has a, you know, a different history with apartheid and has a lot of really strong scientific and technical uh, capabilities. But outside of South Africa, Kenya was the first place in sub-Saharan Africa to be doing testing and development of genetically engineered crops. And so they have a history that goes back to the 90s, um, uh, developing uh, virus-resistant sweet potato. And so it was those kind of technological developments um, that, that really drew me there. Um, and I was really curious about how the country was developing um, frameworks, policy frameworks to, to guide those developments. Uh, and even more specifically than that, I was really focused on, um, on a civil society, which my dissertation title said, um, how non-governmental groups, so groups that were not only representing farmers and, and environmental concerns, but also groups that were, um, you know, representing um, scientists and agricultural researchers, um, and, you know, how they were involved, um, civil society groups were involved in, in, in making policy. And so I, I lived in Kenya for about a year, and I was doing some uh, some uh, sociological and we call it ethnographic research, which basically involves doing a lot of interviews um, with scientists, with policymakers, with farmers, with workers from these NGOs, um, and uh, and work just kind of hanging out in their offices and talking to them and, and seeing what they're what they're doing and watching them uh, interact with folks. Um, and so, you know, like I said, my question was about well, who who is involved in making policy and, and how are they involved? Um, and one of the things that I learned very early on is I would spend half my time with, uh, say, activists that were very much against the development of genetically modified crops and half my time with scientists and advocates who were very much in favor of the development of genetically engineered crops in Kenya. And both of them were really good people. <laughs> and this kind of, you know, it was a surprise to me in, in a way because, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, it, it can be seen as oh, there's maybe a conspiracy here on one side or the other. But both of them really wanted what they thought was best for Kenyan, for Kenyan farmers. Um, and but what really happened in, in the debates there when they were, Kenya was deciding um, how to form its regulatory policies is that they, they ended up framing the debates in a very narrow way. And this was actually kind of detrimental because it was framed in, in terms of just very narrowly in terms of risks and benefits. And those were both defined in terms of, you know, risk to human health and the environment uh, and possible, you know, economic uh, benefits. And so a lot of the groups, especially the groups that were more critical of genetically engineered crops, they weren't able to phrase their concerns in that language, if that, if that makes sense. You know, they had groups about how they had, these groups had, had concerns about how it just might change farming practice or change uh, perhaps access to uh, a type of a variety of, of crop that might be culturally important uh, or uh, important um, uh, for livelihood reasons that they might have more difficulty accessing. And so these groups had a hard time kind of framing their concerns in this narrow risk benefit way. And, they got shut out um, from a lot of the decision making, um, and that just made the communication and the situation a lot worse. So the, the groups never, the sides never got together and sat down to kind of talk about their different opinions and and you know the different things that they that they cared about. Um, and so a lot of this was done in the media and then uh, played out in a way that, that became really antagonistic and really polarized. 
and it was it was kind of uh, to the detriment of I would say both sides that that they didn't have open communication channels. And so, I mean, in terms of of you know nuggets that you can take away, it's, it's hard uh, with such a complicated situation because there were lots of different you know types of, of people involved in politics on many levels, but. One of the things that that and it came out of the forum we were both at in D.C. Uh, too at the National Academies, Paul, was the importance of communicating uh, uh, broadly um, and, and scientists communicating um, with non-scientists and with people in advocacy, advocacy groups communicating with scientists and, and members of the public communicating with policy members and scientists because this largely did, just didn't happen in, in Kenya at, at, in any major way. And that really led to a, a lot of roadblocks and getting policies made and, and roadblocks in, in terms of, you know, creating technologies that would lead to, to beneficial uh, outcomes one way or another. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so this that's wonderful. I, I'm sitting here, you know, puzzling over this myself. And, and so I can imagine, you know, if I think back to my own experience that I've, I've in, you know, had encounters um, with individuals that had very strong opinions and, and uh, you know, maybe I do too, you know, <laughs> based on the science that I've read. And, and uh, it, it can be really hard to open those doors to communication, but you, you stressed in your comments a moment ago how important it was to have open channels for communication and so so it, you, uh, you know as a as a non-ge you know non-genetically engineered uh scientist yourself and how would you how would we open the door what do you what you know what do you think we could do as scientists to open the door when encountering in individuals with these strong um uh opinions but 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 who may share the same interests and that is to provide the best opportunities for say Kenyan farmers or Kentucky farmers um you know the best opportunity for a good life what 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 can we do to open the door to uh, better communication oh man well um it's a it's a big question it's a tough question um but in a way there are there are lots of answers right i mean i think uh, a lot of it starts uh, with a bit of, of uh, self-reflection. Um, so we, you know, we, I, I work with a lot of um, uh, graduate students, um, in, you know, in Kenya and here in, in Canada. Uh, you know, I have a project now where we're working with some uh, a group of students who are working in the area of synthetic biology, which I'm assuming a, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with uh, with this field, a new and exciting area of, of biology. Uh, you know, allowing us to make novel biological systems with, you know, precision and, and speed that wasn't wasn't possible before. And so working with this group, um, you know, our project was about uh, actually helping, um, uh, and it's ongoing, helping them to think about how to engage um, outside of academia and how to engage with the public. And, and one of the first things we did was uh, was think about uh, taking them through exercises of, of self-reflection, yeah. which I think is really important. So, you know, uh, we're all so busy in academia doing our work and we're in the lab that we don't often take time, you know, take time away to sort of ask, well, why are we doing the work that we're doing? Uh, and what, what motivates us? Um, and, you know, even asking questions about if everything goes really well with my experiments and, and my progress, um, who might benefit from the eventual out, outputs of my work? And how might those benefits happen? You know, um, it's hard also when we're in the lab to sort of think about life outside the lab and what happens to the research after it leaves the lab. Um, but I think part of that reflection is just thinking a bit more broadly, too, about, okay, well, what happens to my research after the paper gets published? You know, who, who might take it up? 
what might I be able to do um, to get it out there, um, you know, and to not just uh, to, to other scientists, um, but, you know, how might someone in government be able to use my research? Um, what might someone in the public, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, maybe in, in different, um, uh, different public groups might want to learn and might benefit from my research? So I think it starts with that kind of reflection and, and taking the time out to sort of, you know, think about your own motivations. And we would say, like, your, your own values, what, what things you sort of care about that brought you to the research. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's learning, uh, to talk about that, uh, in a way that doesn't just involve talking about the actual science that, that we all, you know, that, that we do, but uh, the, talking about the, the, so what questions, which can be a lot harder to talk about, right? So we can, we're, you know, we can be pretty good about this is my science. Um, these are the experiments I'm looking at or the, you know, the proteins I'm looking at. Uh, but, uh, oftentimes when you're, you know, talking to say someone in the media or, you know, someone at your Thanksgiving table, like your, your aunt, or, you know, your, your grandfather, uh, you know, they're, they're of course interested in the science, but they want to kind of know the why, uh, you know, um, what's interesting, what's exciting yeah. about it. And so to learn to talk about, um, your science as, as a story, you know, to learn to talk about, uh, okay, you know, if, if the science is successful, what happens, um, you know, what, what's the, what are the bigger pictures? And oftentimes it's connecting to things that, that we all care about, um, and, you know, but that someone as a non-scientist can relate to. And so if it's about, uh, you know, creating more, um, you know, more healthy foods, then that's a place to start to engage with people because we can all share those values of, you know, um, we all want healthier foods, you know, we all want, um, we want healthy children. And so if you can find a way to talk about your science uh, in terms of those values that reach across, whether or not we think genetically engineered crops are the right way to go, if you can start the conversation about, you know, values that we share about like health and nutrition, um, and, and what does that mean, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and these ways, and then you're connecting with, with other people at the level of, uh, you know, at the, at the level of personal interaction, you know, a person to person and, and sharing these values. And then the conversation can move to, what are, what are the different ways that we can achieve these goals and, you know, these things that we care about? And, you know, at that point, you already have a shared connection with, with someone. And so if you can learn to tell your, your, your science stories in, in terms of the so what and in terms of the values that we all, that every, you know, that we all think are important, um, it, it provides a good starting point. Um, and then from there, you know, sure, sometimes conversations get heated. Um, but, you know, if you can bring it back to, well, we have a common goal um, and, you know, and, and how can we reach it? Um, it's, it's helpful that, um, it's also really important, um, to listen and, you know, communication is a, is a two way street, uh, probably a multi-way street, you know, in a way that we're, we're talking with lots of different people. And, uh, I've taken a lot of groups of, of scientists, of graduate student scientists to science museums, um, you know, science centers, uh, places where, uh, you know, school children come and, and families come. And I think what gets the students there is, you know, they sign up to work with me on these projects because they think, oh, you know, I'm going to learn to to be able to talk about my work in a, in a better way. And in some ways, that's what I was just saying, that that's very important. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what they really get out of it is also listening. And so when you when you do talk, you know, you have a teacher that comes up with some school kids or, or parents with their kids is that, you know, you start to talk about your work, but you also start to, to you know, you get questions about your work. Um, and you start to learn what other people care about and the things that really motivate them. And it, it, at the end of the day, what a lot of students say is that it makes them think about their own work differently. 
And I, I don't think I'm, um, you know, I'm being so bold uh, to say that it actually makes them better scientists, because then when they think about how they're going to design their experiments, what work they want to do, of course, they have to take in the constraints of funding and their supervisor. Uh, but there is some leeway. And sometimes, you know, they hear the voices of those people that they spoke with in the museum. And they think about, oh, maybe my next project could be could be on this. Um, and so listening and, and, and uh, I think it's also really important part. Well, these these are great nuggets. And so um, the, I'm going to repeat all three. One is the so what idea. So what? And and of course, <laughs> maybe we don't want to say that in a seminar. So what? Why are you telling us all this? But we could frame the question is what what is the significance of your work to, you know, farmers and who, how might you see it applied and everything else that you said that that's a really important point and i and i know an extension specialist that used to ask that of students all the time so you're 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 exactly right he was he was a good model for me and i am you've reminded me of the importance so one point you've made is so what um it's a great seminar question people graduate students ask your colleagues that and ask faculty will do the same thing you you stress the importance of shared values uh as as a way to open communication doors and third you stress the importance of listening and uh really good i'm making notes here so these are really good points well um we'll, we'll take a short break and um we're, we're talking to matt harsh dr matt harsh from concordia university and uh, when we come back we'll continue to talk about the relationship between science and technology and society so thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast Today, a note about auto wrecks, podcasts, and happy endings. A note to the Talking Biotech podcast comes from Jenny from Bemidji, Minnesota. She says that she was listening to the Talking Biotech podcast while driving late on a snow-covered country road. She hit a patch of black ice and ended up losing control of her vehicle, rolling and landing upside down. She was unable to call for help as she was unable to find her phone. But wherever it was, it continued to play the Talking Biotech podcast. She was trapped there for over an hour, cold but unharmed. Thank goodness for airbags. She wrote, I closed my eyes and listened to the podcast. Kevin and Paul kept me company until help arrived. She was able to enjoy two complete episodes of the Talking Biotech podcast and said that the soothing messages of science made a desperate time much more pleasurable. Thank you for letting us know, Jenny, and proud to be your podcast, Jaws of Life. Share your experiences or interests with us at talkingbiotech at gmail.com. And now, back to the podcast. Welcome back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're here with Dr. Matt Harsh from Concordia University in beautiful Montreal, Canada. And uh, Matt, we're so glad to have you. Um, So we've had some really good discussions so far about um, things that we biologists and natural scientists need to consider in in you know, in, in these, in, in generally with complex issues and controversial issues, uh, not just gene- genetic engineering. One of the themes that I see in said over and over, and I, and I, 
I think it's true, is that we natural scientists should, must do a good job of, of interfacing with social scientists and forming collaborations with them, hopefully early in projects. And I, and I think it's just not on our radar sometimes to do that. So um, maybe you could uh, comment about uh, that topic for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so as you said, you know, it's often collaboration, uh, interdisciplinary collaboration now, it's it's kind of a buzzword. There's a lot of, of, you know, going around at a lot of universities, you know, across the world about how, you know, natural scientists and, and social scientists and, uh, you know, need to work together. And so one of the things I, I, I thought I, I could say is something from my own work was a, a, a kind of framework that, that I found and that my colleagues and I have found um, that's kind of uh, helpful and useful for doing that. Um, and because it's, it's, uh, it's framed around, um, at the end of the day, trying to work together so that we can uh, steer and guide uh, technological re- uh, scientific research and technological development towards you know these shared societal goals and, and values that I was talking about earlier, and so um, there's a, some some scholarship and approach that that's called uh, technology assessment, and it's really all about collaboration between natural scientists and and, and social scientists, um, but also it, it brings in collaboration with policymakers and and the public as well. Going back to what we we spoke about before, and so. You know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of social science work done about technology assessment. The basic idea is that oftentimes with technologies, um, we kind of don't know uh, the impacts that they're going to have uh, on society until it's too late, if that makes sense. So there's a, a dilemma. This was identified by a fellow by the name of David Collinridge back in 1980. It's a trade-off between knowledge and power. So early on, um, you know, te- technologies aren't being used by people, so they're not kind of socially and economically entrenched. Um, but we don't necessarily know how they're going to change and impact society. But then uh, later on, the technologies are out there. There's been infrastructure that's been built. Uh, you know, there there have been uh, they're widely disseminated, uh, and so it's kind of hard to change. We don't have a lot of power. Uh, but at this point, we do know the the impacts that they'll have on society. So to get around this dilemma, um, uh, there's been a lot of work done about how can we try to assess technologies as they're being developed. And that's where the collaboration between scientists and social scientists really comes in. And so there's different schools of thought on this, but generally speaking, there's kind of three key components where uh, natural scientists and social scientists can work together. And the first one is about anticipation. Uh, and this is, this is not prediction, because it's really hard to predict you know, what technologies will be developed in the future, but it's about trying to dis- uh, uh, decide where the science is moving. Um, and so this, uh, uh, I've done a lot of this kind of work where, you know, we do interviews with scientists where we talk about, you know, uh, what, what research are you working on? What's kind of coming down the pipe? If your research works, uh, what might happen? And at the same time, you can also do things where you look at trends in scientific publications and sort of start to see where, you know, uh, in the field of genetically engineered crops, for instance, we might say, okay, it looks like we might have some, you know, these varieties of drought tolerant crops or these nutritionally enhanced crops. And so you can talk to scientists, you can look at, at, at publications and you can try to anticipate what technologies are happening. And then what's also important is to try to come up with, uh, try to come up with some, uh, idea of what the implications of those technologies will be by maybe looking at the history of technology. So we could say if this if this crop is developed, this is this uh, is possibly you know some benefits and some drawbacks, and you can come up with different kinds of scenarios. Um, and then you take those scenarios out um, and engage with lots of different type of people about them. So you can say uh, you know you can go to a science museum and talk to different members and uh, you know of, of publics and you can go to different advocacy organizations and say, hey, these are some technologies that might be developed 
uh, these are some of the possible societal implications. And then you listen and you engage. And again, you can hear about people's values and what they care about. And it, it can give us a sense of, you know what, um, technology, A, this crop, A, you know, it, it could provide these potential benefits. Uh, but there, you know, you know, there are some different concerns from different, different groups, uh, what they might be. If we look at technology, A prime, it could provide some of the same benefits, but the, it also might alleviate some of the concerns. And so the real key to this is after you've anticipated and engaged and collaborated is to try to integrate what you've learned back in to research and innovation and policymaking. And that's the trickiest part because we can learn a lot about uh, technologies and, you know, what their implications might be. We can engage with the public and learn about, you know, what, what different people care about, what policymakers care about, what, what scientists care about. But then to try to integrate that back in decisions about, well, you know, which technologies should we pursue and how should we make policies about them? That can be really tricky, especially because a lot of this is done in the private sector, and sometimes you know it's it's hard to look at other values besides economic values. Uh, but what we found is that one way to integrate these ideas back into uh, technology development is through training future scientists, uh, so graduate students. Because if if uh, going back to to some of the things I was saying earlier, if you can train graduate students early on. Um, you know, to think about uh, the so what questions and, and the values in their in their research, uh, they can integrate what they've learned uh, into their science uh, as they progress and for their whole career uh, as scientists. So this three part kind of anticipation, engagement, and integration is a model for collaboration between scientists and social scientists, and it's it's uh, it's targeted towards a goal, and so it it helps if you have you know uh, uh, a focus on a specific you know, type or, you know, uh, technological platform, like, you know, a certain area of GE crops where you have some different options available um, and focusing on that goal and collaborating around that and collaborating early, uh, I would say early and often, as you mentioned, it's great um, to have your, uh, a social scientist and natural scientist working uh, and co-developing the projects um, at an early stage. What, what excites you, Matt, about the future of, of the field that you're working in? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, a lot of things excite me. I would say, you know, despite, uh, you know, the comments that we were talking about how it can be really difficult, um, you know, to steer and guide technology so that we, we get positive outcomes uh, for society and, you know, and, and every technology comes with some trade-offs. I still would consider myself uh, a, a cautious uh, technological optimist. So I do think that we can and will do great things um, with technology, including uh, you know, different agricultural technologies of, of all different sorts. Um, you know, and I, I look at like I mentioned, a lot of my work is in Africa, and I look at the you know the great benefits we've seen from uh, cell phones and mobile communication there, um, and just the surprising uh, high penetration rates. Um, uh, you know, almost everyone in, in in Kenya has a cell phone now, and the way that people are able to connect and do business and, and transfer money. Uh, and, you know, in surprising ways, so I, there are so many success stories. Uh, uh, so I still, I, I feel like, you know, we will do great things. Um, uh, but I'm also a, a social optimist, I would say, maybe in this day and age, uh, in this time, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's rare, but I have a lot of faith in people. <laughs> and so, you know, I look at the, the, my undergraduate engineering students that I teach every semester. And I look at the graduate students that I work with in the area of synthetic biology, um, and I, I look at uh, uh, graduate students that I that I see every year uh, that, that come to Ottawa and come to Washington DC and, and, and a training program that we run on science and technology policy. Um, and I see very smart, dedicated people who want to make uh, the world a better place. 
And, you know, and they come somehow, they find people um, like me, people who, who study technology and society um, and realize that there is something there um, uh, that they don't quite have uh, to, that, to, to take their science to sort of the next level. And they're not exactly sure what it is, but they have an open mind about it. And so that's what excites me about the field, I guess, is, is you know, uh, continuing to, to closely collaborate um, uh, you know, with sociologists and of technology and people who do public policy of technology, for us to closely collaborate uh, with you know with natural scientists, with engineers, you know, particularly uh, to me, it seems like there is. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it too with your own graduate students. You know, a, gr- a group of young graduate students that that um, you know want and, are, and really care about you know science um, for for the public good, and they're just trying to figure out how to do that. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the field looking forward, I think that that's, that's exciting to me. Wonderful. Um, yeah, that's great to hear. And, uh, but I, I do want to stress a couple things here before we close. And, and Matt, um, you said that, um, you, you, you've met scientists who want to make the world a better place, these young scientists. And you also used, uh, sci- the phrase science for the public good. And I, I really want to reflect those. That, that is a very, you know, it feels good to scientists working in this area because ultimately, even in spite of the, the conflict that sometimes people face in in providing outreach on genetic engineering, it it, it feels good when we're recognized for the motivations that that drive us. And uh, and I do want to say um, my my experience of social science research and social science interactions uh, has been very helpful in in helping me do a better job of providing outreach. So Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Matt Harsh, uh, assistant professor from the Center for Engineering and Society at Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech. Write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.